Hi everyone, and welcome to today's episode. Today I'm joined by another esteemed guest, Mr. John A. Paulson. A little background on info about Mr. Paulson. He launched and led Paulson & Co., a New York-based investment firm in 1994, then in 2020 decided to turn his hedge fund into a family office. He's been called by many as one of the greatest hedge fund managers of all time and a man who made one of the biggest fortunes in Wall Street history. He is widely known as the man who executed the greatest trade of all time. His bet against the U.S. subprime mortgage lending market netted him $20 billion in promise profits for his clients, himself, and employees in 2007. Mr. Paulson is now a philanthropist, donating millions to educational institutions like NYU, Harvard, and New York City charter schools with a focus on improving education at all grade levels. In 2015, Mr. Paulson donated $400 million to Harvard University School of Engineering and Applied Sciences which was the largest gift received in the university's history. Today, Mr. Paulson and I will be talking about his big short during the 2008 financial crisis, the fundamentals of hedge funds, and his career in philanthropy. So without further ado, Mr. Paulson, welcome and thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you, Logan. It's a uh, pleasure to be on your podcast. Of course. And now before we jump into today's topics, I would love to hear your story and how you got into finance, the hedge fund industry. And how did that eventually lead to the founding of Paulson & Co.? Yeah, thank you, Logan. It all started when I was a student in the uh, business school at NYU, and I taught. I took a uh, course called the Distinguished Adjunct Professor Seminar in Investment Banking, and it was led by the uh, chairman of Goldman Sachs at the time, Gustav Levy, and he brought in the heads of each of the uh, of each of the key divisions of Goldman Sachs, which at the time were. Uh, 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 capital markets, uh, M&A, uh, and risk arbitrage. And the head of risk arbitrage, which at the, at the time was uh, Bob Rubin, who was uh, uh, Gustav Levy's protege and ultimately became chairman of Goldman Sachs and treasury secretary as well. And he led the risk arbitrage department. And I think he was in his 30s at the time, was already the most profitable uh, partner at Goldman. Uh, running the the uh, most uh, profitable division of Goldman, which was investing the partner capital in proprietary trading strategy of risk arbitrage. So, uh, you know, at the time, I was enamored uh, with with that story and decided, you know, I wanted to, um, you know, work in risk arbitrage. And what they told me at the time, the, the way to do that was to go to Harvard, get your MBA, then work at MBA in mergers and acquisitions. And if you were successful, uh, then uh, uh, work in, uh, then you could work in risk arbitrage. So that's exactly what I did. I, um, I went to uh, Harvard uh, Business School. I got my MBA. I joined uh, Bear Stearns in the M&A department, ultimately became a partner in uh, mergers and acquisitions, and then left. Uh, Bear Stearns and joined a private risk arbitrage firm called Gruce Partners, uh, which had a stellar, it's a very private company, but had a stellar uh, track record in uh, risk arbitrage. And, and although private at the time I joined them was one of the top 10 largest uh, Wall Street firms ranked by capital, although they only managed their family's money. And after four years at Gruce, I left and formed uh, Paulson & Co., uh, focusing on uh, risk arbitrage investments in uh, 1994. 
That's great. And now I want to uh, move on to the first topic of our discussion. I'd like to ask some questions about what hedge funds are, the industry, and your investing philosophy over the years for our listeners. So my first question is, how would you define a hedge fund? And can you explain the difference between a hedge fund and a traditional mutual fund and the pros and cons of each? Yes. Uh, hedge funds, the unique aspect of a hedge fund is they can go long as security as well as short as security. While long only mutual funds generally only go long. So by, by adding a short capability to your uh, investing repertoire, you can profit when markets go up and depending on how your position profit when markets go down. And by doing that, you can reduce the volatility of the fund, uh, earn non-correlated returns, and depending how well you execute, uh, potentially offer higher returns than traditional long-only investing. So, I would say the the uh, you know the goal of hedge fund investing is to offer above-average returns with below-average volat below-average volatility, and you can do that by managing a, a long-short portfolio. The other aspect of hedge funds, you know, from a financial business perspective, it's a very simple business. Uh, you earn a 1% management fee and then an incentive fee, which is typically 20% of the gains. And that's generally fair is that the investor who puts up the money gets 80%, and then the manager for managing the money gets 20%. So there's an alignment of interest. But the numbers add up pretty quickly. So let's say you, you were managing a 10 a million in capital. A 1% of 10 million would be 100,000. Uh, so you get a hundred thousand management fee, and let's say you did twenty percent of gross returns on the ten million you were managing. That would be two million dollar gain. So twenty percent of that would go to the manager. Twenty percent of two million four hundred thousand go to the manager. So you add that to the hundred thousand management fee, you can earn roughly five hundred thousand in fees managing ten million if you can earn a 20% gross return. Now, multiply that by 10. Instead of managing 10 million, you're managing 100 million. You can earn 5 million in fees. And uh, multiply that by 10. If you're managing a billion, you can earn uh, 50 million in fees. So the numbers progress pretty wildly. If you manage 10 billion and earn 20%, you can make uh, 10 times 50 or 500 million in fees. Um, so uh, it can be a very, very lucrative business uh, just following this model if you can produce uh, above average returns and manage a lot of capital. At, at our peak, we managed about 35 billion and our returns were even higher than 20%. So you know, the fees produced to a hedge fund manager can be very lucrative. And that, that's the attraction of being in the business. I'll say one other thing. There are very minimal capital requirements to launch a hedge fund. You basically need, you know, a place to work and, and, and that's about it. You know, there's no capital investment. Uh, but obviously, you need the ability to, to manage money in an uh, attractive way to investors and have some unique capability that causes investors to want to uh, entrust you with their capital and uh, allow you to manage it for them. 
So could you ultimately say that the main similarity between the two is they both invest in a diversified portfolio and they want to achieve something called alpha, but one takes on more risky investments than the other? I, I don't think uh, hedge funds are more risky uh, because you can go short uh, and profit when the market goes down. Uh, hedge funds, uh, you know, conceptually should be less risky. So in, in our investing history, we were less risky than a long-only manager. We had lower volatility, uh, lower drawdowns, and higher returns. So, for instance, in the financial crisis, when the market fell 35% in 2007, we were up in 2007. So, um, you know, generally, because we're able to uh, profit when markets go down, uh, produce above average returns, have lower drawdowns and less volatility becomes kind of like a have your cake and eat it too. And if, if, you, if you know what you're doing and have a knowledgeable in a particular sector, you know, those are the ultimate goals of, uh, you know, managing a hedge fund. Got it. Okay. And obviously, when we hear the word hedge fund, we obviously know what a fund is. That's, you know, assets, that's securities being managed. But when we hear the word hedge or hedging, we often get confused. So could you explain what does hedging in a hedge fund mean? Yeah, hedging means that you want, uh, instead of long only, if you're long only and the market goes down, you're going to go down with the market. Uh, but if you want to uh, hedge your investment, uh, short something against the long, then if the market goes down, you'll lose on your long position, but you'll make money on the hedge, the short position. So by having a hedge against your longs, you uh, you you reduce the volatility by uh, profiting on the short side, and you can use those profits to hedge losses on the long side. And depending how you're positioned, you could in many in many cases profit even though the market goes down depending on you know the type of shorts you have and the net exposure of your fund so could that be the same way if your long position goes well then it can cover your short position as well that's a good point if you're short and the market goes up you lose money so uh, that's why uh, you know many people don't like shorting stocks because you know, the, you know, they, they want to make money when the market goes up. And if you're short a stock, you lose money when the market goes up. So uh, that's where the expertise of the manager is, you know, in constructing a portfolio that has both longs and shorts. And ideally, you're picking out investments, uh, you know, uh, uh, that will that will go up when the market goes up. And the shorts may go down even if the market goes down. So that's where the, uh, the uh, you know, expertise in uh, managing a long-short portfolio uh, comes in. Yeah, no, I was getting this idea kind of from uh, earlier this year in the GameStop short squeeze. I was getting that idea. I was like, yeah. So uh, I want to dive deeper more into kind of like the investment strategies that hedge funds use. So could you go into more depth and talk about what kind of investment strategies do hedge funds typically use? Yeah, well, I, I'll talk. I'll take the the biggest category is long short, and uh, you'd go long. You know, you generally concentrate on an area. Let's say you concentrate on automotive industry, and uh, you you believe you know certain auto companies will go up and certain 
auto companies will go down. So in that situation, if you think Tesla is going to go up, you go long Tesla. You think GM is going to go down, you go short uh, GM. And if you're really knowledgeable and 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 about your 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 uh, the companies you're investing in, it's possible that uh, Tesla could go up and GM could go down and can prop it both ways. Or if the market goes up, Tesla will go, go up more than uh, a GM and you'll profit when the market goes up. And if the market goes down, GM will go down more than uh, Tesla goes down and you'll, you'll either lose less or potentially profit when the market goes down. So that is the largest segment of uh, hedge fund investing. We were not to long short. We, we specialized in another area called risk arbitrage, which is or also known as event arbitrage, which is uh, 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 betting on the outcome or investing based on the outcome of an event rather than whether or not the market go, will go up or down. And I'll give you an example. Uh, in, a, in a takeover situation, let's say a company A is buying company B for $50 a share. And prior to the announcement of the merger, uh, company B was trading for $30 a share. So when the deal was announced, the company went from 30 to, let's say, 47, and there was $3 left on the table. When the merger would close, the stock would move from 47 to 50. So in risk arbitrage, we would buy the stock at 47, and uh, uh, then when the merger closed, we'd get uh, 50, so we'd make $3. Now, $3 doesn't sound like a lot of money, but you take $3 over 47, it's roughly a 6% gross return. And if the merger takes four months to close, you can multiply it by three, you'd make an 18% rate of return. Now, eighteen, no, $3 is not a lot, but 18% annualized is, is a pretty high return. The market on average over its history is probably compounded somewhere around 9%. Um, so while certain stocks go up a lot, you know they go down. And over time, it's somewhere around there. Now, if you can make 18%, now the beauty of uh, uh, risk arbitrage is let's say you buy this stock at 47, and while you're waiting for the merger to close, the, the market falls 20%. Um, well, as long as this deal closes at 50, you'll make the $3, the $3 uh, regardless of whether the market goes up or down. So that's why it's uncorrelated. So what we would do is have a, a diversified portfolio of uh, many different merger situations because occasionally uh, they won't work out and the stock will fall. But over time, if you if you you know are an expert in in, in judging the risk of mergers, you can construct a portfolio that the returns will be completely uncorrelated with the market and uh, potentially earn higher rates of return than the market on average with lower risk. So that's the uh, that that became our specialty: investing in uh, risk arbitrage, primarily companies undergoing uh, mergers. Now, can you, can you correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, in risk arbitrage, the acquiring company, the one that would be acquiring the company, their stock price would most likely go down. So then you would put put options on them and then the target company, most likely their stock would go up. So you would go long on that. Yeah, it's a good question, Logan. It depends if it's a cash deal or a stock deal. So if it's a cash deal, it doesn't matter if the, uh, the acquirer stock goes up or down, they're agreeing to pay a fixed amount of cash for the uh, 
a target. So all you do is buy the target at a discount to the cash offer. And as long as the deal closes on the agreed terms, you earn whatever the spread is. In a stock deal where uh, the acquirer is offering stock for the target, then it is very volatile. Because the, if the acquirer's stock goes down, you're going to get less in value uh, for your stock as the target. So what you do in that case is if, uh, let's say, company A is offering one share for company B, you go long company B, the target, and you'd short one share of, of the acquirer, company A. And the spread is similar to a cash deal, but by shorting the acquirer stock and going long the target stock, you lock in the spread. So if you, if you set it up at, let's say, $2, it doesn't make a difference. Once you set up the spread, if the acquirer stock goes up $10, then the target stock goes up $10. The spread remains $2. If the acquirer stock goes down $10, the target stock goes down to the spread stays two dollars. So by shorting the acquirer stock and going long the target stock, uh, in 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 the same ratio as is being uh, given in the merger, you lock in a spread, and then you're indifferent to whatever happens to the market. Uh, all you care about is that the deal close on the original terms. Great. Uh, now I'd like to now transition into your famous big short during the housing market crash and your other shorts against UK banks during the 2008 financial crisis. So, you know, before we dive deeper into your big short in the process, I read you use credit default swaps to short the mortgage-backed securities that banks issued during the time of 2006 to 2008. Can you explain what a mortgage-backed security is and what a credit default swap is? Yeah, sure. Just a mortgage-backed, what they did was when people buy a mortgage, uh, you know, you, you, you get a mortgage to buy a home, the investment banks would buy, let's say, a, a billion dollars worth of mortgages and then put, put them into a security and sell those securities to the public. So it was a way of, of a securitizing mortgages and making turning them into public securities. When they turned them into public securities, though, they, they somewhat complicated by offering tranches. So Generally, there were 16 or 17 different tranches of the mortgage-backed security, uh, which uh, uh, the top layers were called AAA. It could have six different layers of AAA, the most senior. Uh, and then you had AA, A, B, 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 and then you had the equity tranche. And the, the way the waterfall worked is if there was a loss in the in the in the pool, the lowest tranche would take the loss first. So, if you own the AAA security, and there was a twenty percent loss in the pool, you still got paid hundred percent of your money back. However, if you own the B security, uh, and there was a loss in the pool, that the attachment point in the B was generally around six percent. So anything below 6%, the triple B got par. It was only about 1% 1, 1 thick. So any, any loss above 7%, the triple B would be wiped out. Um, so uh, uh, based on that structure, they sold these mortgage-backed securities. So um, let, me, let me just ask if there's another question after that. That's the structure of a mortgage-backed security. Now, generally, home mortgages were the safest investment 
uh, outside of a U.S. treasuries. So the mortgage-backed security market zoomed in value. And, uh, you know, you know, at some point, at the point in 07 was actually larger than the U.S. Treasury market. It was about a $10 trillion market with about, uh, you know, $1 trillion in uh, a subprime mortgage securities and the rest in uh, either Alte or uh, uh, traditional mortgage-backed securities. Oh, could you also explain what a credit default swap is? Yeah, so uh, a credit default swap is just a, a synthetic version of a mortgage-backed security. So instead of buying the actual security, you can buy a credit default swap on that security. And what, what would happen, the, the, if, if the security uh, doesn't default, you pay what would be the interest on that security. But if the security defaults, then the uh, holder of that security would have to pay you a par for the uh, loss on the security. So if you thought a uh, security was going to default, you'd, you'd buy uh, protection on that security and you'd pay the interest rate to the uh, seller. And if the, if the security didn't default, you'd just be paying that interest rate. And then once the, indus- the, the, the security matured, you know, you just basically take a loss. It's like shorting a bond. Uh, if, it, if the bond doesn't default, you just pay the uh, coupon. However, if the, if the mortgage defaults, uh, then the uh, seller has to pay you a par uh, to pay you for the default of the security. So it's, it's a, you know, a synthetic form of buying a mortgage security. It also can be viewed as a, uh, uh, you know, a form of insurance against default. Now, do you think a good example in a more simplified manner for a credit default swap, could you say a credit default swap is like insurance on a house if it were to burn down? For example, the credit default swap would be the insurance. Uh, the mortgage-backed security would be the house. Default on a bond would be represented by the fire. And then a CDS seller would be the insurance company. Exactly. That's a good okay. way to look at it. Got it. And then for a mortgage-backed security, did investors get principal principal payments and interest payments, or did they only get principal? Well, uh, it depends if you're on the long or short side. If you're on the long side, then you would get the interest on the, um, on the security, not the principal. If you're on the short side, you'd pay the interest, and only in the event of a default would the, uh, a buyer of that security have to pay you the principal back. Great. You know, uh, we, we've been talking a lot about shorting. And, you know, for those who are not familiar with your short against the housing market, could you explain what it means to short a position? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say I shorted the housing market. I shorted individual mortgage-backed securities. So what, what, if you go long a security, you profit if the security goes up. If you short a security you profit if the security goes down. So that's the most simplified way to look at a short. A short is the opposite of a long. So you lose if the security goes up, but you make money if the security goes down. The actual mechanics of, of shorting are you know, 
is, is all sorts of ways, different ways to short, but the, the economic, uh, uh, the economics of a short or, or that simple, you just lose if it goes up, you make money if it goes down. So when we shorted mortgage backed securities, uh, we set ourselves up to profit if those particular securities went down. And when you mean down, you mean like the underlying value of the bonds. So if, if it was worth something like a thousand dollars and it go down to $900, just hypothetically, then you would make a profit. I think an example is, let's say someone buys a house for a um, hundred thousand dollars and they get a mortgage uh, for 90,000 to buy the house. And then the the uh, the owner of the house uh, defaults. He can't pay the mortgage anymore. And then uh, the mortgage holder forecloses on the house and gets the house in return for the mortgage. And then when they go sell the house, they only get sixty thousand for the house. So uh, the mortgage security uh, that was ninety only gets sixty back. So there's a thirty dollar loss on the mortgage. And that in a in a if you owned 100% of the mortgage, then you'd lose 30 of the 90. But because these securities were tranched from AAA to, let's say, single B, it's only the lower tranches that would lose 100% of their investment, while the higher tranches would still get par. So what we did was we shorted the lower tranches, the triple B tranches of the uh, these mortgage-backed securities. And you basically only needed a loss of 7% on the whole pool before the entire triple B was, was extinguished. So uh, those, are the, those are the tranches of the mortgage securities that we focused on. And you actually shorted junior tranches that were made of, of subprime mortgages, is that correct? Yeah, so the mortgage-backed, you know, I mentioned the mortgage-backed securities market is a very large market, and you have, uh, you know, the most uh, higher-quality uh, mortgages, which were, are made to, you know, high-credit-worthy borrowers, um, you know, that's the biggest segment of the market. And then you have uh, what's called all-day, which are kind of mid-level credits, and then you had the subprime mortgages, which were uh, the... Uh, uh, mortgages made to the uh, riskiest uh, credit uh, borrowers. So since we were betting on the short side, you know, we wanted to short the, uh, the riskiest securities, which had the highest chance of defaulting. And generally, th this, this uh, market was characterized uh, by uh, very poor uh, underwriting, uh, very low uh, credit standards on the part of the borrowers. Uh, that's why they're subprime, below prime. And there was also uh, a lot of uh, fraud in in the uh, valuation of the houses against what the uh, mortgages were based. Got it. And uh, now, could you walk me through the process of how you purchase these credit default swaps? And in general, how are you able to place your bet against the subprime mortgage-backed securities? Yeah, the amazing thing is that the the history of uh, you know, as I said, of, of mortgage performance was very very high. So, um, you you know, according to Moody's and S and P, uh, 
there had never been a default of an investment-grade mortgage-backed security. And never being, I guess, post-World War II or post-1950. And we said, oh, well, they did default in the Great Depression. They said, well, you know, unless you think we're going to have a Great Depression, you know, we don't think mortgage securities are going to default. And they'd laugh. Uh, but then they also said, you know, we go back 40, 50 years, but we don't go back further than that. That's, you know, they had enough data 50 years. And the, and the truth of the matter was there hadn't been a default of an investment-grade security. The problem is that the quality of the securities continued to deteriorate. So while there had never been a default of an investment-grade security, there had never been such low-quality securities issued uh, in the past. So we didn't think the past was necessarily representative of the future. And in fact, the quality of the underwriting mortgages just got worse and worse. It got to a point where in the subprime land, the lenders would say, no credit, no money, no cash, no problem. You know, 110% financing from, uh, you know, one of the companies, Ditech Mortgage Finance. So they would literally, if you were a borrower, you had no credit. You had a horrible credit rating. Uh, you had a history of never paying your money back. And you had no cash to put down to buy the house. They would still lend you a hundred, in this case, 110% of the purchase price of the house. So you can actually buy the house with no money down and get 10% of the purchase price in your pocket. As crazy as that may sound, even though you had the worst possible credit rating. So the the standards, the underwriting standards just, just plummeted. The only thing that kept these mortgages performing was that the housing market was rising so rapidly. So even if you couldn't uh, pay your mortgage, if you defaulted, the lender would take back the house, but the house went up in value. So they'd sell the house for more than the mortgage and they'd, they'd sustain no loss. Or alternatively, if you couldn't pay your mortgage, they'd refinance you with a new mortgage, you'd pay off the old mortgage. So this, 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 uh, uh, this pattern continued as long as home prices were going up and you can bail out bad borrowers either with by selling the house at a higher price than it was purchased at or by refinancing the mortgage at a, with a higher mortgage than the one you originally bought. So this sort of uh, uh, game you know, was poised to stop uh, once house prices started to decline. So when we got involved, uh, the house prices weren't declining, but the rate of growth was slowing and, you know, trending straight downward. So I think in 04, you know, houses may have, prices may have risen 12, 15%. But starting in 05 or early 06, each month, the rate of increase started to decline in a very predictable pattern. So it went from 13% to 12 to 10 to 9, 8, 7, 6. And there was some point it was trending that the, the, the not only would the, the rate of growth slow, but that they would go into negative territory. The other, uh, in addition to home prices falling, the, the credit quality was deteriorating and the delinquencies were rising. So the percent of subprime borrowers that were 90 days delinquent you know, started going from like 5% to 6% to 7%, corresponding with the decline in home prices, got to some point that the 
you know, over 20% of the uh, subprime borrowers were 90 days delinquent on their mortgages. At the same time, the year-over-year change in home prices was, was falling to low single digits. So it looked like once, once the, uh, the home prices stopped rising and the delinquencies kept rising, that at some point there would be mass defaults that the homeowners would not be able to repay the mortgages. The, the home prices, the, if they were sold, would not cover the par value of the mortgage and that the availability of mortgage financing would, would, would decline so that people could not refinance their way out of the mortgage and ultimately the mortgage market would collapse. So and- we, we saw these trends occurring and just a continuation of those trends, which you could time based on the speed they were uh, occurring, you could sort of, or at least we, we were able to predict very precisely when when we thought the market would collapse. Uh, where did you where did you buy your credit default swaps? Did you buy them from banks? Yeah, we only bought them from banks, so we never bought them from end users. So we traded with all the banks from, from Goldman Sachs, Citibank, Morgan Stanley, Credit Suisse, Deutsche Bank. They were very sophisticated, knowledgeable uh, market makers. So. Uh, we bought, um, you know, hundreds of millions, billions from each of the banks. And I think at the peak, we had about, we're short about 25 billion of mortgage-backed securities through credit to swap, default swaps with all the major banks being our uh, counterparts. And again, we only shorted the triple B tranche, which meant that a, a loss of 7%, these securities would be extinguished. And the triple B tranche was the lowest investment grade tranche. So that's why there was so much confidence in buying these securities uh, because there, there had until this time never been a default of an investment grade security. But we predicted the losses on these pools would be in the 20%. So these things were, were toast in our opinion. And the amazing thing is we could buy the protection for only about on average one and a half percent. So we'd pay one and a half percent a year. And if we were wrong and they didn't default, we'd be out one and a half percent. But if they defaulted, we would earn a hundred cents. Uh, and it, we actually got the cost down to various means to about one percent. So in essence, we risk one percent in order to make a hundred percent if they defaulted within the average timeline of these uh, CDS, which were about two years. So it was a very screwed trade where you lost little if the trade didn't work, but you made a lot if, if it did work. Uh, did you ever think of shorting the senior tranches? Mostly because I'm thinking of the big short and I'm thinking how banks, they actually use, they put subprime mortgages into these higher tranches, these senior tranches that were actually graded, you know, triple A, triple a uh, double double A, but in reality, they were made of bad mortgages. So, did you ever think of doing that? Yeah, Logan, it, it gets even more complicated in the financial uh, machinations they created. So, there's the actual mortgage-backed security, uh, which you know has triple A tranches and you know double B tranches. But there, in order to get a default on the triple A tranches, 
you needed a loss. They, they had attachment points of like 70%. So you needed a 30% loss before you would impair the lower AAA tranches, but you would never be able to impair the, the higher uh, AAA tranches. However, what's confusing is that they, they created these new structures called CDOs, which were, uh, they would buy 100 triple B tranches from 100 different uh, mortgage-backed securities and then say, oh, because we're diversified, the risk of loss is lower. And they formed these CDOs uh, of 100 different uh, tranches of triple Bs. And then they sold the securities in the CDOs like 60% were triple A and down. So in those situations, the the you know you thought you were buying triple A securities, but the underlying collateral was only triple B. And if you you know while each of the securities were different, they were all very very similar. So if you if the triple Bs were all wiped out, let's say you had a loss of a loss of twelve percent would wipe out on average would wipe out all the triple Bs. And in that case, the entire CDO, the triple A's, would, would go to zero. So when you so there was a triple A's of CDOs and triple A's of mortgage-backed securities. So very, very few, if any, triple A's in the mortgage-backed securities defaulted, but almost all the triple A's in the uh, CDOs of triple B tranches of more, they did default. So we did short. I mean, the highest return came from shorting the AAA tranches of CDOs that were collateralized by triple Bs. And in those situations, we paid like as low as six, 16 basis points. Uh, and, 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 you know, I remember buying size. The last ones we did were 35 basis points, still nothing. We paid a third of a cent per year. And when these defaulted, they went to zero. So on those, we made like 300 to one returns. That's how we, that's why I said we got the average cost down from one and a half to like 1% is by doing a mix of mortgage-backed securities and CDOs. Um, so, but yeah, the triple A tranches of CDOs collapsed. And that was, you know, one of the, one of the public deals we got involved in is that Goldman Sachs a structured a CDO called Abacus, and that was uh, about a billion six uh, CDO of of just triple B tranches of underlying securities, and we sold a billion worth of the triple A uh, to Goldman, and Goldman resold it to someone else. And this happened very very fast. When the dust cleared, uh, the triple A's went to zero in less than a year, probably about nine months. And uh, the buyer uh, sued uh, Goldman, and uh, you know ultimately the SEC stepped in and and you know said Goldman you know did not fully disclose the securities anyway. They settled this, but uh, Goldman was the intermediary. Um, we were the uh, owner of protection, but in that situation, yeah, it was a AAA defaulted less than nine months after securitization, the buyer lost 100% and we made 100%. So it was pretty, um, pretty, 
whacked out situation of what was going on in, in financial engineering at that time. But it definitely worked in your favor. So um, back then, uh, did banks have to make you credit default swaps specific to mortgages or were mortgage swaps already in use before before your bet? I'm getting this idea from the Big Short movie where I believe uh, Deutsche Bank had to create the CDS contracts. So I was just curious if that was the same situation for you. Yeah, you're very uh, smart and these are, uh, you know, sort of minutia, but the mortgage-backed securities were created independently of ourselves. So the banks would buy the mortgages, roll them up into a securities, get them ready and sell them to investors. But the CDOs of the triple B tranches of mortgage-backed securities, those were synthetic. Uh, so you would have to find both a buyer and a seller in order to create the CDO. So in that case, uh, when, when Deutsche Bank, as well as Goldman, was looking to structure a CDO, they had to find a seller of protection. Uh, so we sold these securities to the CDO, then they structured the CDO, and then they resold that the tranches from that CDO to investors. So those were more bespoke in nature and that um, you needed to match the buyers and sellers of protection in order to create the CDOs. Now, I am curious, what was the risk and return trade-off when you placed the trade? Uh, what happens if the bet did fail? What would the bank get from you? Yeah, the bank just got the, on average, 1% interest. So I think we scaled this up in that, um, you know, we were spending about... 2%, yeah, 2% in our funds. We were willing to lose 2% a year. So we, that means we were managing, I believe, 6 billion at the time. So 2% was 120 million. And that allowed us to short uh, uh, roughly 12 billion of securities. So, um, and that cost us $120 million a year. And that was equal to 2% of our capital. So if the trade didn't work, you know, we were making like 12% a year. So instead of making 12%, we would have made 10%. We, we, we would never, that's all we risked. But yet, if the, if the securities defaulted, if all of them defaulted, we would have made $12 billion or 200% in our capital. So it was a very, very... Uh, uh, Scoot trade where you lost, you know, a very small amount if it didn't work, but you made a uh, fortune if it works. It was very asymmetrical. But, you know, for us, it wasn't a crapshoot. We understood the, the trends of the mortgage market so well that we thought it was, we could almost predict with a uh, degree of precision when the market would default and that, you know, we thought it was a very high probability that the securities we were short would default. So we shortened about uh, $12 billion in our, our main funds, but then we, you know, we wanted to get more aggressive. So we set up specific uh, credit funds where we took even more concentrated bets. We shorted basically $12 of uh, securities for each dollar of investment. So we raised a billion dollars roughly in these uh, credit funds, and we shorted 12 billion, ultimately 15 billion of securities. Um, and uh, in total, we had about 25 or 26 billion in shorts, 12 billion in our main funds, and uh, 14 in the uh, credit funds. 
And ultimately, you know, all these securities defaulted as, as we anticipated. And, you know, depending on we covered, we made returns of probably 50 to 100 percent in our main funds and then returns of over a thousand percent in our credit funds. So to reiterate, if the bet went well for you, right, if the mortgage-backed securities defaulted, then you would get the face value of all bonds that you bet against. For example, if you pay, let's say, a million dollars in premiums for a hundred million dollars in protection on multiple mortgage bonds, then you'd make a hundred million. And then, but if your bet didn't go well, then you would have to only, you would be losing money based on the amount of premiums you paid. Which is a million. Exactly. That's exactly right. If, if the bonds didn't default, I paid a million. If they defaulted, I made a hundred million. And that's exactly what happened. Got it. So I think that's, that's why it's I... called the greatest trade ever. It's, it's the there most as, asymmetrical trade where you can lose very little, but you can make a fortune. And it, it rarely ever happens that investment grade bond default oh, yeah. happens. That's why the returns were so skewed. But we got the both the security and the timing right. And we're able essentially to make that 100 to 1 return. And now, obviously, hedge funds are often known for using leverage to help maximize the returns. So I think another important question to answer to the story is, how much of your assets under management did you use to place your big short? And did you use any leverage to boost your trade? Um, I think I, you know, the, the investment, these, essentially, we bought options. Uh, the credit default swaps are like options. So you, you spend 1% to make 100%. So we didn't, we managed uh, $6 billion, so we didn't borrow any money. We just spent about $120 million in annual option premium, which was about 2% of the assets we had under management in our main funds. In the credit funds, we spent about, you know, 8% of our um, capital in option premium. Oh, no, actually 12%, 12% per year uh, for a two-year time frame. So if we managed a billion, we were spending 120 million on option premium. So if, the, if none of the bonds defaulted over a two-year period with our fees, we would have been down about 25%. So that's what we risk. So we told investors, invest in the credit. If you invest in the base funds, you know, you, you know we're only spending 2% if we make 10%. And our other investments, you won't lose money. You just make slightly less than you would if we didn't have these credit default swaps. But in our credit fund, we didn't have anything else besides the shorts. So we said over a two-year period, you could lose 25%. But if the investment works, you can make over 1,000%. So for those that were a little more risk-averse, they went to the credit funds. And obviously, those turned out very well. Got it. Now... In retrospect, your housing market short was a bold and risky bet. So I think the big question is, how did you see the collapse of the housing market before everybody else? And why did you decide to go through with the trade, considering the housing market was super stable during 05 and 06? Yeah, I think um, that's a good question. I sort of uh, answered it before. You had a massive deterioration in credit quality. You know, I gave you an example how, how ludicrous the, the uh, underwriting terms were for credit, that uh, people with no credit or a history of, of bad credit, no jobs, no income, 
uh, could still buy, borrow 100% or more of the purchase price of the house. So the, the, and the, the, the credit, the delinquencies were already soaring in these loans. So they were every month rate of these mortgages that weren't being paid was rising and home prices were falling. So it was kind of a, you know, a very simple physics problem. If home prices kept falling and went negative and delinquencies kept rising, at some point the mortgage market would collapse and then these mortgages would sustain losses. So it just based, what we couldn't understand, it became very obvious to us, but the the problem is the machinery, the factories that were just geared up to buying mortgages, securitizing them, selling them, they just were oblivious to the what was going on and they couldn't stop the machine. So the even though the the underlying fundamentals were deteriorating, the market pricing didn't adjust. So it was an, an incredible opportunity to buy protection at very low cost when it seemed obvious to us that, that these securities would default. Great. And now I read in an article by Business Insider that you had additional bets, uh, bets that people may not know of that helped you gain another $5 billion during the 08 crisis by shorting stock prices of financial firms from the UK. Could you elaborate more on why you shorted Lloyds Bank and the Royal Bank of Scotland? And did you see fraudulent uh, behavior from both companies? Uh well, by the way, you're right in that we did short banks, but it was not limited to the UK. We also shorted banks in the US. I think it was New Century? Uh, we shorted New Century. We shorted Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Citibank, Washington Mutual, IndyMac, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers. Basically, all these banks were highly levered, meaning on average, for each $100 of assets, they only had 3% equity. So just simply, if the assets fell from 100 to 97, their equity would be wiped out. So we started focusing on uh, the institutions that had large quantities of subprime or uh, poorly performing mortgages. And the biggest mortgage lenders were the, the banks that we were shorting. So Fannie and Freddie were 100% mortgages, and they were even more levered. They had only 1% equity, if you can believe it. So they had a 1% loss in the portfolio would wipe out the equity. And then Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns, they were the two largest mortgage lenders in the country. And they had a, both had about 3% equity and about 20 20 to 30% of their portfolio of their total assets in, in, in lower quality mortgages or otherwise high risk securities. So if they had 30%, for instance, in risky credit instruments, they took a 10% loss. That would be 3%. That would wipe out the equity. So what we did is we looked at the, the banks with the most leverage and the riskiest portfolios, and then we estimated. It was a pretty simple analysis because the when the mortgage securities started to fall, some of them were trading at 60, 70 cents on the dollar. The banks didn't fall. So all we did was take the market value of the securities they had in their portfolio and then estimated what their 
losses would be on their portfolio, compare that loss to the amount of equity, and then rank them uh, uh, based on the loss to equity ratio. And we, we picked these stocks where the, the losses, by the way, the losses only had to be 3% in order for the loss to equity ratio to be 100%. So we ranked them and, and you know, based on that ratio and Fannie and Freddie had the highest ratio, I think it was over, was over 200%. And then we, any, any bank that had over 100%, we shorted. And we were 100% right. Fannie and Freddie both went, uh, failed, were taken over by the government. Uh, Lehman failed. Bear Stearns was taken over by J.P. Morgan. Washington Mutual uh, failed. A New Century failed. Indimac failed. Uh, and, um, you know, some of the other banks, while they didn't fail, they, the, the equities, you know, like Citibank fell from 50 to $2 a share, and then they were rescued by the government. So um, that, that simple analysis, uh, you know, allowed us to pick the, the worst securities and to short those, and those provided additional gains. Great. Now, Mr. Paulson, we are going to move on to what I believe is the most important subject of today's discussion. While everyone in the finance world knows you for your investing career in Big Short, some might not know you, know you also have another side of you that you take pride in, which is your philanthropy career. I'd like to dive deeper into your uh, philanthropic efforts. So could you talk about how did you first get into philanthropy and what drives your desire to give back to society? Well, I think, you know, generally, as Americans, we are philanthropic people. So, uh, you know, we care about, you know, the well-being of our other citizens. So I grew up in a family that, you know, we weren't uh, wealthy, but we always contributed to uh, causes, whether it was UNICEF or, um, you know, Channel 13 or, or you know, feeding hungry children abroad. Even at Halloween, when I was a child, we used to trick or treat for UNICEF rather than for candy. And, you know, my mother organized that. She said, oh, this is a, you know, what are you going to do with all the candy? That's a good way to raise money for poor children. So we always had that, you know, philanthropic bent. And when I graduated from school, I was grateful for the education I had at both NYU and Harvard. And every year, you know, I gave to the the college funds, you know, I started out at $50 and over time moved up to probably $1,000. But I always felt, and, you know, I think it's tradition of, um, in America that, you know, if you, if you make money, you know, whatever level that you're charitable at, at some level and that the wealthiest people look at the Carnegie's, the Rockefeller's, uh, you know, they were the most charitable and they did great things for society. So, uh, I, just it was part of my upbringing that, you know, once I became successful was to think about uh, philanthropy and where I wanted to give back to society. And uh, I started with, you know, I, I thought I didn't come from uh, a wealthy background. I came from an educated background. My, my mother was a, t a psychologist and my father uh, was a businessman and both had graduated college, but we were not, we were like upper middle class. So I didn't go to private schools. They couldn't afford private schools. I went to public schools and after public schools to uh, NYU and, and then Harvard. But, you know, I was, you know, I, I always thought that the key to success was really education and that uh, if you had good educational opportunities, and I still believe that today, 
you know, the sky's the limit to what you can achieve. So uh, my initial focus in philanthropy was to support uh, education, particularly those schools that were supportive to me. So uh, Harvard, you know, is maybe the wealthiest school in the country, but they've, you know, given opportunities to so many uh, people, so many successful alumni of Harvard came from very modest means, received scholarship at Harvard and became leaders in their field. And, you know, I'm, I'm one example of that, but there's countless others. So, uh, you know, uh, probably, you know, I mean, the colleges in general have done so much to create equality and, and um, movement amongst uh, uh, economic classes than, than really anything else. So uh, my first my largest gift was to Harvard, and uh, Harvard is strong in all areas. But the one area they were, you know, weren't particularly strong in was, was when uh, engineering. Uh, and, you know, Stanford was very strong in that category. And Harvard had really focused on, uh, hadn't focused on applied sciences and applied engineering. So that was where they wanted to focus. So we gave it a gift to endow their school of engineering and applied science. And I think that'll have a material impact on, on uh, Harvard's uh, position in technology going forward. It already has in computer science and, and uh, medical technology and data sciences and the like. And then, uh, you know, we also gave money on the other end to charter schools because, you know, we are very concerned with uh, inequality and um, lack of economic opportunities for uh, minorities. But we found that the uh, charter schools in New York City, in particular Success Academy, that they were 94% uh, of the students were uh, underrepresented minorities, and yet their charter schools ranked among the top 1% of all public schools in New York State. And uh, the, the outcomes were so much stronger than, than the traditional schools that I felt the best way to provide economic opportunities for minority was to support the best education alternatives for minority children. And that's why we became major benefactors and still are for Success Academy Charter Schools. So that was our initial focus in, in you know, investing in uh, education opportunities. And, you know, we, we, we continue to do that. The other area I wanted to focus on was cultural activities because you know, I believe in, in uh, uh, you know, the arts and other forms of culture aren't as well supported as the sciences, but yet it's, it's so important to uh, society and our mental well-being. So in, in the heart of New York is Central Park, um, and that is really a refuge for so many people. So, I mean, coming from New York, I wanted to do something positive for New York, and it's nothing more beloved than, than Central Park, but I, I think most people don't realize that that's a funded by a private uh, conservancy called the uh, Central Park Conservancy. So that Central Park also became a major uh, beneficiary of our financial uh, philanthropy, um, and uh, you know that you know that's probably the the uh, the gift that has given people the most pleasure because everyone both foreigners and local use Central Park. And it's, it's a real refuge for people that live in New York City. 
That's great. And, you know, I know a while back you started uh, something called the Paulson Foundation. Uh, could you elaborate more on what do you and your wife, Jenny, hope to accomplish through your philanthropic efforts at the Paulson Foundation? Well, uh, that's right. I think we transferred, you know, close to half our wealth to the foundation. And the foundation now has a, a core a capital. And, you know, we're required by law to give away 5% of a year. And, uh, uh and, you know, our focus, you know, has been and will remain on, you know, providing philanthropic support to uh, uh, educational and cultural um, institutions. By creating the foundation, though, and the foundation earns money, uh, you know, that will, that will, you know, ideally survive, uh, you know, beyond my own lifetime. And, and this foundation will be continue to support education cultural courses, uh, you know, well after um, I've passed away. That's great. And the last question before we end today's conversation is, as a concluding question for our listeners, what advice would you give to young students who have an interest in a career in investing or finance? Well, um, you know, I think you need to have a passion in investing in finance. Uh, you, Logan, seem to have that passion. I had that passion as a very young ch child. You know, I started trading and, and working and, and making money, saving money, investing money. I started companies when I was young as 18 and was always fascinated about, uh, you know, commerce. I found it fun. It's like playing a game. And, uh, you know, it's a financial game. And if you enjoy it or passionate about it, then it, then it's a, a good career to be involved in. Uh, finance has many interesting areas. Uh, you know, there's hedge funds, there's private equity, there's long only, there's venture capital. But it's a, uh, you know, uh, it's a remarkable uh, profession and there's a lot of opportunities and, you know, a lot of ways to create uh, personal wealth. So if you're passionate about it, then, you know, what you'd want to do is, is study, you know, major in business, either at the undergraduate or graduate level, and then pursue a career in finance, whether it's uh, investment banking or one of the investing areas. Uh, that I just outlined. And if you do that and succeed, there's just enormous, uh, you know, opportunities to achieve uh, success. So do you think success is really the root cause of success is passion and loving what you do? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. I do. I think, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to be successful doing something you don't want to do. So some people may say, oh, finance is a great business. But if you're not passionate about finance, you do it because someone else told you to it, but you don't really want to do it. It's unlikely you achieve success. So the most important thing to look at in terms of a career is what do you, what do you really love to do? Um, and uh, you know, maybe you want to make movies, or maybe you're an artist, or maybe you want to work in helping people, or maybe you like medicine or science or physics or math. So... It's, you don't, I think the right thing is not to ask other people what you should do, but ask yourself, what would I be doing if I wasn't working? What, what do I like to do in my spare time? Because you can be successful in any area. So it's best to, the right, the most important person to ask is yourself, what do I love doing? What would I do if I wasn't working? What am I passionate about? And that's the area that you should pursue a career. And when you're passionate about it, the learning just comes so much faster and you're likely to be very successful in that endeavor. Awesome. Mr. Paulson, 
Thank you so much for your time and sharing your wisdom and advice with the next generation of investors. I'm sure our audience learned a lot in the fascinating world of hedge funds and philanthropy. Your legacy will live on forever and be appreciated by many in the near future. It was a pleasure hearing your adventure. Well, thank you, Logan. Uh, thank you for organizing this podcast. You're really doing a great job, and it's a pleasure for me to uh, participate in it. Thank you. Take care. Thank you guys again for tuning in into today's episode. We hope you learned a lot and expanded your knowledge of business. You can follow us at the underscore finance underscore podcast on Instagram, as well as emailing us with any feedback on the podcast at the.finance.podcast at gmail.com. And feel free to leave a review, a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, if you so please. Thank you guys again and have a great day. Peace, guys.